After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, when the house of Caesar, while the ark is covenant of the water, is under a tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. But that night the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go, and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Nephilim reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The New Testament reading for this morning can be found in Matthew 1, verse 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, 
and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Beud, and Abud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Bab- to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. The books of First and Second Chronicles. While they're two separate books in our Bibles, that division is not original. Due to scroll length, the book was divided in two, but it was written as one book with one coherent storyline. Now, in our English Bibles, Chronicles comes after the books of Samuel and Kings, and most of Chronicles is actually repeat content from those books. And so most modern readers, when they come to Chronicles, they think, wait a minute, I just read all of this, and so they skip it. And that's a shame, because this book is really unique and important important in the Bible. In the traditional Jewish ordering of the Bible, Chronicles is actually the last book because it summarizes all of the Jewish scriptures. The first word in the book is Adam, the first character at the beginning of the story, and then the last paragraph announces the return of Israel from exile. Now, we don't know who wrote this book, but we can tell from details within it, it was produced by somebody who lived a couple hundred years after the Israelites returned from the Babylonian exile. Now, for this author, Jerusalem and the temple were rebuilt some time ago, and as we learned from Ezra and Nehemiah, things were not going well. The great prophetic hope was that the city and the temple would be rebuilt, that God would come to live among his people, the messianic king would come, and all the nations would come live under his peaceful rule, and none of that has happened. And so the author of Chronicles has reshaped these stories of David and Solomon and the kings of the past in order to provide a message of hope for the future. And we'll see that he's designed this book to emphasize two clear themes. First, the hope of the coming messianic king. And second, the hope for a new temple. Let's just dive in and you'll see these themes all over the book. First Chronicles begins with nine chapters of genealogies, long lists of names. And you'll read these and think that this is kind of boring, and that may be true for you, but actually they're very, very important. The author is summarizing here the whole storyline of the Old Testament by naming all of the key characters in the stories. And as he does so, he shapes the genealogies to emphasize two key lineages. First is the line of the promised messianic king. So lots of space is dedicated to tracing the line of Judah that led all the way to King David, to whom the messianic promise was given. And then from David, the author traces that line up into his own day. The other family line that receives lots of attention here is that of the priesthood, the descendants of Aaron, who, of course, served in the temple. And so right from the start, you can see the two main themes, the author's hope of the Messiah coming to build a new temple, and it's rooted in these ancient genealogies. 
Now, after that, the author moves into the stories about David. And most of these are going to be familiar to you from the book of Samuel. But again, there's some really important differences. So first of all, the author leaves out all of the negative stories about David where he's portrayed as weak or immoral. So Saul chasing David around the desert and persecuting him, the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband, all of that is gone. And what's left are the stories that portray David as a good guy. And not only that, there's also new additional material that you won't find in the book of Samuel that shows David in a very positive light. So there's a large block of chapters where David makes preparations for the temple. He arranges resources and builders and Levites and choirs. And not only that, the author also portrays David as a Moses-like figure. God gives David plans for building the temple just as he gave plans to Moses for building the tabernacle. So why all this new material about David? The author's not trying to hide David's flaws. He knows that anybody can go read about them in the book of Samuel. Rather, he's trying to portray David as the ideal king in order to make him an image or a type of the future Messiah from the line of David. It's very similar to how Jeremiah or Ezekiel spoke of the coming Messiah as a new David. This is most clear in how the author retells the story of God's covenant promise to David in 1 Chronicles 17. When you compare the story with its parallel in 2 Samuel 7, you'll see that the author of Chronicles is highlighting that neither David nor Solomon nor any of the kings from his line were the messianic king, and that when the Messiah does come, he will be a king like David. And so for this author, these stories about David from the past are what sustain his hope for the future. After David dies, we move into 2 Chronicles, which focuses on the kings that lived in Jerusalem. And again, there's lots of overlap with 1 and 2 Kings, but there are many key differences. So the author has left out all of the stories about the kings of northern Israel so he can just focus on the line of David. And there's lots of new material about these kings from David's line. He highlights the kings that were obedient to God, and he adds new stories about how their obedience led to success and God's blessing. But he also adds new stories about kings who were unfaithful to God. They didn't follow the Torah. They led Israel to worship idols. And these kings face horrible consequences all leading up to Israel's exile, a mess of their own making. And so this whole section becomes a series of character studies where the author wants later generations of Israelites to learn from their family history and so become faithful to their God and the Torah. Now the book's conclusion is really unique too. At the very end of the book, the king of the Persians, his name's Cyrus, and he tells the Israelites that they can go back home, return from exile, rebuild the city and the temple. And he says, last line of the book, whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And that's how the book ends with an incomplete sentence. Now, of course, the author knows about the first return from exile and the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah, but clearly in his view, the prophetic hopes of Israel were not fulfilled in those events. And so this incomplete ending shows that the author's hope is set on yet another return from exile, when the Messiah will finally come to rebuild the temple and restore God's people. And so the book of Chronicles, it's the final book of the Jewish scriptures, it ends by pointing forward. It calls God's people to look back in order to look ahead because the past has become the source of hope for the future. So Chronicles concludes the Old Testament as a story in search of an ending. And that's what this book is all about.
Dear friends of Jesus Christ, good morning. And I was gonna say it's good to see you, but I can't see you. Um, I continue to preach into a phone and you continue to watch these uh, worship services on videos. Uh, I cannot wait to gather in person again for worship. And just a quick update on where we're at with that. We continue to make plans and to uh, adapt those plans as we get new information. Um, and as more people uh, get vaccinated, which Jen and I got our shots this week, hopefully uh, you have gotten at least your first shot as well, if you're able to. Um, but where we're at this Tuesday, the elders will be looking at a proposal from our worship committee to, uh, within a few weeks, uh, begin worshiping in person with a 50 person max in the form of a Sunday evening, uh, outdoor Vespers service, a simple, uh, simple structure of worship that, uh, we can meet in groups of up to 50 at a time. Uh, we shifted away from thinking of this step as like one big reopening step. That's all going to happen at once and more in terms of how can we go from, 50 people and then, uh, you know, as, as this fourth wave um, recesses and as we, uh, more people get vaccinated, then we will uh, up that number over time. And so we look forward to that. Uh, if you're someone who just is like, wow, what's taking so long? Um, I feel ya. I too very much miss uh, being in person together. Um, but let's hang in there a little bit longer, remain vigilant, and get this uh, this fourth wave under control. Um, but here we are in Chronicles, and we are in First Chronicles chapter 17. Um, and this is uh, nearly the, the same passage as we've already seen in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which God makes a covenant with King David. And, uh, you know, David has this idea that now that he's established the royal city, he wants to build God a house, a temple. And God responds through the prophet Nathan and says, David, uh, you are not the one who's going to build me a temple. Uh, that'll be your son Solomon. But I am going to build you a house, uh, a dynasty. And, and God makes this this commitment to David and David's family line that it's through David's uh, descendants that God will bring about a Messiah figure, a good king who will bring about the restoration of Israel and God's mission through Israel to redeem and save the whole world. And so it's uh, an important moment in the whole drama of scripture. Uh, and yet, as I was studying it this week, I came across a quote by a famous Old Testament scholar, arguably one of the you know, best Old Testament scholars alive today. And, um, and I'll tell you, I want to read his quote and then tell you why uh, I find his words troubling and why I ultimately disagree with them. Here's what he says. Uh, he's saying, before this moment before this promise to David, God's commitments to Israel are regularly and characteristically conditional. They are governed, he says, by the ominous if 
of ethical requirement. Indeed, the whole of Mosaic faith is that God's good inclination depends on Israel's obedience. With David, however, the if has disappeared. Now there are no acts of disobedience and purview which can make Yahweh terminate this profound commitment. He goes on to say, it's as if God has now written David and David's family a blank check. It's not to say there will not be sanctions and punishments, but they are not terminal. The works of David or Israel are not decisive. God loves unconditionally. What do you think of that? He, he seems to be saying, if I'm reading him right, that before this moment in the story, before God's covenant with David, God's love to Israel has been conditional. Something that, quote, uh, depends on Israel. God's good inclination depends on Israel's obedience. But now he seems to be saying from this point forward, at least for David and his descendants, now God's love is unconditional. Now there's nothing, these are my words, that David and his descendants can do or not do that will make God love them any more or any less. The problem I have with this is that, uh, and what I want to ask this, this, this scholar is, is it that God has changed? Or is it that God's love has changed? And if so, would you say then that God's love has, has grown or deepened or matured? And if that's the case, then was God's love beforehand somehow of less quality? than God's love now, as though God was less committed to Abraham's well-being than to that of David? And what about Abraham? What about the covenant God made with Abraham all the way back towards the beginning of the story in Genesis chapters 12 and 15 and 17? And God making an everlasting covenant with Abraham, involving the promise of not only the land, but promising to make him the, the father of many nations, of many kings, a picture of a united monarchy within his descendancy, that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens, that all peoples on earth will be blessed through him. What about that promise? Another way of asking this, and I think that the deeper for me and more relevant question is, is about the nature of God's love, the nature of God, uh, God, God's self. Is God's love constant? Was there ever a time in which God did not love all people, all things with all of who God is? Does God's love come and go? Is God's love something that a person can lose? Is it something that I can lose? Is it something that you can lose? Is it constant 
and unwavering towards the neighbors on your streets? Or what about God's love towards Sherman Street Church? Is that something that we can lose? Is it in any way conditional on how we respond to God? What about to someone like Dante Wright, who uh, a couple of weeks ago, a young black man in the Minneapolis area who was shot and killed, uh, though unarmed by police. Um, his funeral was this past week. How does God feel towards him and the people involved in that situation? Or what do we make of God's love towards someone like Derek Chauvin, uh, who on Tuesday we saw convicted of the murder of George Floyd? Is God's love towards Derek Chauvin conditioned on how he responds to that love? I think that uh, how you answer this question has huge bearing on how you go about relating to the world around you. I think it has huge bearing on especially how one sees uh, the least of these or the people in our society who have been written off or deemed by some as uh, unworthy of the rights and benefits of others. I'm willing to bet that what you think of this bears on your view of the use of violence, of, of war, of capital punishment, of policing, of criminal justice uh, issues, or maybe, maybe even just whether or not you think it's okay to shame and demean another person on Facebook, if you think that what they're saying or the way they act is, is despicable. Do all people get God's good inclination? And really, uh, the next question is, do I need to treat all people with good inclination? Or is that goodness only to be extended to them if they are good in return? I think uh, this way of framing uh, God's love, is it conditional or is it unconditional? Uh, is sort of a, a lose-lose situation. It seems to me that either you end up on the side of saying, yes, God's love is conditional. Yes, you, you, you hold on to the if of, uh, you know, that even, even if you say we don't earn grace, that it's still in the end ends up being something that we need to perform uh, good behavior to, to hold on to this grace. It ends up being the determining factor and gives human beings, I think, far too big a role in the, the great drama of, of salvation. And yet, at the same time, if, if we just say that God's love is unconditional, that it has nothing to do with human response, then we run the risk of, of ending up 
concluding that how we live then doesn't really matter. That what we think about God or whether or not we love God and love our neighbor in the end doesn't actually make a difference. And we run the risk of our role in the drama of salvation being too small. So, what do we do? I don't know. And that's the end of this sermon. No. Uh, I, I was helped by uh, an article, well, really a, a review of a book by John M.G. Barclay. John Barclay, a book called Paul and the Gift, uh, which came out in 2015. And I didn't read all 672 pages of it. But I was I was helped by this. And this is, uh, this is where I end up kind of... Um, finding a helpful reframing here. What Barclay says is this. He, he rejects the language of conditional, unconditional. And he says it fails to have uh, the nuance that it needs. The book is actually, he gives, instead of just this one category of conditional versus unconditional, it's him giving six different categories for how uh, to think of the quality of, of grace, of Charis in in the Greek and and he tracks how Paul uh, deals with these six different ways of thinking about it. So we won't get into all that. You can buy the book if you're fascinated by that or look up uh, you know synopsis of it. But instead of being stuck in this dichotomy of conditional unconditional, he says he says this: God's gift is unconditioned, but it's not unconditional. Meaning that God does expect obedience as a result of his gift. He goes on, God's grace is designed to produce obedience, designed to produce lives that perform by heart inscription the intent of the law. On October 24th, 2010, Jen and I uh, stood in the front of a church in Milwaukee facing each other and she was wearing a white dress and I was wearing a black suit and we got married. We, uh, we made a covenant together and in this covenant uh, we made promises to one another. Now would you say that that covenant that my love towards her and her love towards me is a love that is unconditional or conditional. Well, in the same way as we can't squeeze God's love into those categories, uh, human love, human relationship can't be reduced to that either because the nature of relationship uh, necessarily involves uh, for that relationship to flourish some kind of uh, reception and return of love. And so Jen and I, our love for one another, you, you might say is unconditional in the sense that, you know, we made these vows that are till death do us part, that they don't depend on the conditions of for better or worse, for richer or poorer, for you know, in sickness and in health. Uh, our marriage isn't dependent on 
our personal happiness as as an excuse to to jump ship if I decide one day I don't I'm not having fun anymore. We've made a real covenant to one another that in that sense you might say is unconditional and yet at the same time there's all kinds of expectations that we have of one another expectations to to be faithful to the other and the other alone expectations of of uh living lives of self-sacrifice and when we fail to do that of of saying i'm sorry and talking it out and working through our fights and uh and continuing on in the journey of relationship together and so yes there's a lot that's expected of the other and to acknowledge that is not to say that my love towards Jen or her love towards me because we expect something in return is somehow less quality than a love that is in the one sense strictly unconditional. Uh, it's simply this is how relationships work. And perhaps some of the problematic framing we might get into in this question of is God's love conditional, unconditional, and all these debates and all the mystery of relationship between faith and works uh, that perhaps we need to hold both things, both sides of this in healthy tension because this is a relationship. We're not talking about, you know, the question of whether or not God dropped money in my bank account. We're talking about uh, a God who is relational who is relationship within God's self and who made us in God's image uh, for relationship and so uh, I think the answer ends up being to hold uh, intention both sides of this that we can say on the one hand that God's uh, love is perfect that uh, it is consistent, it is unwavering, it is inherent to who God is. God is love. God's disposition towards love, and this is the issue I take with, with the scholar's quote, uh, is love towards all people all the time. And even the, the harder things in this story of scripture, of God's judgment, God's wrath, the exile, all of this, even these things are the way that we experience God's love when we distort our relationship to it through sin and through rebellion. God's love is perfect. And we can say with Paul in Romans 8 that there is no one and there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our world, our Lord. Amen. God's love is great. And God's love towards you is always, 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 always and forever. That's the one side of this. And yet, and also on the other side, Loving relationship is a two-way street. And God's love is not something that's forced upon us. And God has 
created us as beings who have the power to choose how we will live and how we respond to God and what we do with our lives does in fact matter. It matters uh, for our own well-being. It matters for the well-being of the people you live with, for the well-being of the society you're a part. It matters how you live. And it may even, it seems, matter to where you stand in your relationship with God. That each one of us is given a responsibility with how we're going to use the life and the powers that God has gifted us, and that one day we will be held accountable for the decisions that we make. And so we hold both these. And so I, th- I feel like today is kind of like, I, I wanna preach two different sermons, wherever you are on the spectrum. If you are probably more like me, where you tend to just, you have no, you know, you, you tend to have a, a easy time holding up the unconditional love of God part, but don't always hold up the like, therefore, you know, to you who are like me, I want to say the awesome, incredible, unwavering, perfect love of God can never be an excuse uh, to stop seeking holiness, to stop taking the sin in your life seriously, to stop re- confessing it and repenting of it and uh, choosing by the Spirit's power to live as a new creation in new ways and with new possibilities. It requires us to take seriously all the evil in the world and the role that we have in uh, in how this story, your story, the story of Sherman Street Church, the story of America, how, how these stories will unfold. And if you are on the other side of this, if you are someone who tends towards legalism, who tends to look at people and think in categories of whether or not they deserve your or God's good intentions, uh, who tend to, to put too heavy of an emphasis on uh, our own ability to somehow earn our salvation or keep our salvation. To you, I want to remind you today that uh, Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. And that this this drama and really the whole Bible is, is, you know, what happens when God's perfect love uh, encounters the the worst of human sin and evil and injustice. And that's that's the story of the Bible, right? That's the, the Old Testament we've been going through. That's this covenant. That's the exile and the return, which we'll get into over the next month. That's the story that takes us ultimately to uh, Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew picks up the history of Israel, sums up the history of Israel and the genealogy. And it is a bloody, messy, at times very dark and disturbing story and shows how uh, what comes of this this great clash uh, is 
God with us, Emmanuel, in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's be a people who, uh, who hold the tension well, who take seriously uh, the, uh, the ways in which we participate in great evil like white supremacy and uh, the ways that unintentionally, perhaps unknowingly, we, we perpetuate the systemic evils of our world Let's take seriously uh, the power we have, uh, the power of speech to bless or to curse, to build up one another or to tear down. Let's take seriously uh, how we live and at the same time, uh, let's praise God and have gratitude for the cross and the empty tomb. And the good news in Christ uh, that God's mercy is greater even than our sin. And that the life of Christ and the power of Easter is greater than even that of death. Please pray with me. God, thank you that, uh, thank you that in the mystery of these things, in the tension of these things, uh, we can be both comforted by how incredible your love for each one of us is. Greater than the love a parent has ever had for a child or a friend to another. Greater than uh, romantic love, greater Lord than uh, the great sacrifices uh, of history, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that we can hold that and at the same time um, call on you, Lord, to, uh, to grow us in Christ, to carry out with discipline the practices that will lead to good fruit that will edify your church for the sake of your world. Lord, uh, use us, move in us, your people. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.